that'll be next week, the city among cities, because the next psalm uh, deals with the city of Jerusalem. But today we're going to look at Jehovah God. Now you might find that it's um, curious that uh, we would say the God among gods. You're a Christian. You believe in one God, so why are you even talking about other gods? Because God does. Because it's the reality of the situation. This morning as we look at Psalm 86, you will find my focus is going to be on verse 8 which simply says this, There is no one like thee among the gods, small g, O Lord, nor are there any works like thine. Now that's what I'm going to concentrate on this morning, but we are going to look at the rest of the psalm also. In fact is, this God, who is God among the gods, above and beyond all the rest of the gods, he is indeed different than the rest of them. The first seven verses of this chapter of Psalms, we are going to see that he is the God who does actually hear our prayers. See, there are many gods in this world, as the Old Testament says, they have ears that don't hear and mouths that don't speak. And I would go on feet that don't walk and hands that don't operate. Because they're of man's design, man's imagination, they are not the real, living, and true God of the whole universe, the Creator. But the God that we serve is a God who indeed does hear. The next several verses after that, we're going to see, as I've already mentioned, starting in verse 8, that He is the God that is greater than all the other so-called gods. I'll get back to so-called gods in a moment. And then from the, to the end of the chapter, we will see that He is the God that cares. It all fits together. You see, if you worship or you have a concept of God who doesn't hear, He can't be great. And he sure can't care. Because he has no ability to care. The God we serve is a God who absolutely hears. He hears our sinful cry. He sees our need. He hears our prayer. And he is the one that sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the form of a man to come to this earth and interact with us, live among us, become one of us, and then take our sin upon himself and die on the cross. No other God has ever done that. In fact, there's all the other gods with a small g. They expect us to do the sacrificing. The God of the Bible is the one that sacrificed himself for us. Totally, completely different than all the other gods. And then we know, without a doubt, because we, he interacts with us, that he does care. In fact, when you get to the end of this chapter, you will see that every phrase has I or me in there, because the psalmist knew that it was a personal, intimate, close relationship that our God has with us. He is not just someone who is up there. He is someone who is up there, above and beyond the creation, but he also is one who is near us. In fact is, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, he comes and actually indwells us. Our body becomes his temple. And so this morning, we are going to look at how the God of the Bible is the God among the gods. Now, 
you can stick your bulletin in there and save Psalm 86 if it's going to take you a while to find it again. But I like you turn to the New Testament. I mentioned that I will get to the concept of so-called gods. And if you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please. <clears throat> and while you're doing that, I just want to congratulate the... Uh, I wanted to do this before I started and got too excited about my sermon. Congratulate the Etter family. Yesterday, Mark and Leah Etter's uh, only daughter uh, was married to Luke Leonard uh, here at the church. And uh, we congratulate the... Uh, at her family. Now we're back to the sermon. Yeah, you can do that. <clears throat> I joke with them. There aren't all that many girls in the other family, so girls getting married out of the other family is a rare occasion. Right, Rachel? <laughs> I'm now I'm embarrassed her because <laughs> she's the only other girl. So anyway, but look in ver- uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 to 7. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So the Apostle Paul is acknowledging the same thing in the New Testament. There are many small g gods, many, many small l lords in this world. Verse 6 says, Yet for us there is but one God, capital G, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. We can know from the Word of God, and we can know because we have a relationship with Him, that He is the one and only. He is the one that does hear. He is the one that is great, and He is the one that does care. But I want you to know that this isn't only about you and encouraging you. But look at the next verses. Look at the next verses. Look at verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. You see, not everyone knows what they need to know about the God of the universe, the one and only true God. And because they are ignorant, their conscience is defiled. Even believers, because they're not strong in their faith, they don't know what the Scripture says. Hopefully this morning, I will help you a little bit in that direction. That you can leave here much more confident in the God that you trust. The one who cares for you. The one who hears. The one who is great and gracious. Hopefully you have that. But the Apostle Paul doesn't stop there. Because you say, okay, so if they're so-called gods and they're not the real God, is there a big deal? The answer is yes. Because they're strong and great and care and hear? No. But because there is ignorance. Because there is power behind gods with a small g. And you say, hold it a second. That's blasphemy. No, it's not if you know what the Apostle Paul says. And now I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because it's all the same context here. And he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, flee idolatry. He's talking to believers. And he's saying, get away from the idols. Why? Get away from gods with a small g. 
We, in America, we don't worship little idols made of wood and stone and gold. Ours more look like dollar bills and philosophies and things of the world. In fact is, I'm going to tell you, and you'll hear this several times in my sermon, the church has left small g-gods get mixed in. No one, including me, is immune from allowing some of those things to get in our lives, to take the place of the real God. And he says, flee idolatry. Flee away from those things that get between and take the place of the real God that you want to serve. He says, flee idolatry. I speak as the wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing... Of, I'm sorry, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 to 21. And I forgot to pull up my... Um, Okay, there we go. Flee idolatry. This is just an outline of it. <clears throat> he says in verse 16, he says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? See, when we come to the Lord's table, communion, we're saying, yeah, this is symbolizing who we are. We share in everything that Christ has done. It's become a part of our life. It's not a lifestyle. It's a life. We share in the sacrifice of Christ. His blood for forgiveness. His body for our needs. He's done it all for us. And he goes on to say in verse 18, Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? In the same way in the Old Testament, when they brought sacrifices to the temple or to the tabernacle, you were identifying with that sacrifice. Remember what they did before they sacrificed. The person offering the sacrifice laid their hands on the animal. A sign of identification. That animal was taking their place. And the benefits from that sacrifice were brought back to them. And that's what he's talking about here. So whatever you sacrifice to, whatever your focus is, whatever your God is, you're, you're sharing in that. And verse 20 says, But I say to you that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. Hmm. Interesting concept. See, gods with a small g do have power. Not God's power, but demonic power. He had just said in this passage that is an is a idol anything? Is one of these gods anything? The answer is no. Not the idol itself, but there is power behind those false gods. Because Satan himself is the great imitator. In fact, is all false religion is an imitation of what God has given us. If you look at it, you will see that they've taken the real, genuine article and adulterated it. They've, they've messed it up. They've twisted it up. They've taken away from it. Satan is not the creator. He's the imitator. Not only in other areas, but in the area of worship, of gods. And the gods of this world are imitators. They want the same power, the same position that God alone uh, reserves for himself. How do I know that? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or 
do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We're not stronger than He, are we? God has the right to be jealous. You say, jealous, that's a bad thing. No, it's only a bad thing if it's used that you're trying to take something that isn't yours. But remember, God is the self-existing one. He always existed. He is the eternal one, the all-powerful one. He is the one and only. Anyone who tries to claim that, an idol, a philosophy, a religion, a god of whatever sort, is an imposter, an imitator, and they have no right. And God says, hold on a second, I'm the genuine article, all the rest of them are wrong, and I will have no other god taking away from my glory. That's exactly what happens when we worship in the wrong direction. In fact, the Old Testament says the same thing. You know this. You probably, some of, you probably all at one time or the other memorized the Ten Commandments. You know how it goes? Maybe you've missed this part because a lot of times we only memorize the tag. But this is what it says in Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness that is in heaven or on the earth or, or, or above or on the earth, beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Whoa. He says, hold it a second. No one else has this right and I will not tolerate an imposter. I will not tolerate an intruder. Think about this in marriage. There is a place for genuine jealousy in this world. You see, when you say I do, like Luke and Leah did yesterday, anyone else that gets in that marriage, a third party, a fourth party, they don't belong there. We have a godly jealousy for our spouse. We have made a commitment to them and they to us to exclude all others from that relationship. That's the way it is. It's a genuine use of that word. And God in the same way says, hold it, all these other gods are false. And I will not allow that to be mixed up. So God is a jealous God. Now, for that as a background, let's look at what the psalm says. The God of the Bible does indeed hear us. Look in verse 1. And we're now in Psalm 86. This is where we're actually ultimately going. And then we will take a, a, a field trip in the middle here. And uh, I will be doing it quickly. I found out in the first service I got way more information than I have time. Incline thy ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Do preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. O thou, my God, save thy servant who trusts in thee. The psalmist is simply saying, Lord, I know you're listening to me. And Lord, I, have, I can come to you and I can ask you to listen because you've already told me you would. And I know you are the one and the only one who can save me, who can preserve me because I'm trusting you. Verse 3 goes on to say, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to thee I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of thy servant. For to thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Lord, I'm bringing my all to you. I'm not hiding anything. 
If you think you can lie to God and hide things from God, it doesn't work that way. You might as well be open with Him because He already knows you inside and out. He wants you to acknowledge your need. When you cry out, you're saying, God, I can't do it on my own. The biggest part of prayer is not telling God what to do. In fact is, if you start telling God what He has to do, I want to step back because now you're telling Him you know better than He does. But really, prayer is, and talking to God is, God, I know my need. I know that I am not smart enough, I'm not strong enough, I don't have wisdom, I need guidance. Lord, this is, this is what I am. Help! I'm depending on God. Prayer is depending on God and allowing the results to be His results. And that's what the psalmist is doing. And he's saying, Lord, you can make me glad. You can lift, uh, you can lift me up because I'm lifting my soul up to you. Verse 5, for thou, Lord, art good, ready to forgive. Why can he do this? Because we know that he'll forgive us. That's why Christ came, so we can have forgiveness. On our own, doesn't happen. He says, and you're abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon thee. Loving kindness, if you remember from last week, has to do with covenant faithfulness. What God said he would do, he will do. He's loyal. He's loving, gracious, and merciful, and he always does exactly what he said he would do. And because of that, we can come to him. We can know he doesn't change. He's not fickle. He does what he says he will do. And verse 6 and 7 end with this. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon thee. Why? And here's where it came. This is the first uh, point. For thou wilt answer. God cannot answer a prayer unless he's first heard it. He's a God who hears. And he has the greatness to be able to answer that prayer. That's point number one this morning. Point number two is this. God is greater And we'll also find that. Verse 8, I've already read that. There is no one like thee among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like thine. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord. He's saying there's a time when everyone will absolutely acknowledge him. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. That's how the New Testament puts it. But it goes on, and they shall glorify thy name. For thou art great and dost wondrous deeds. Thou alone art God. He is the God. All the rest are imposters. He is separate from all all other so-called gods. They are less than. You do that in math, you have that little, I don't know what you call that thing, a less than mark. I don't know, somebody, Ron, what do you call that? It's Okay. Math professor got it down. I didn't. Okay. Anyway, so let's look at, and that's, that's why I said we're going to take a field trip. We're going to take a field trip from Psalm 86, and we're going to look at some of those concepts that are around us. Some of them are right. Some of them are true, but others are false. And we're going to look at some terms that you may or may not have ever heard. Maybe you know what they mean. Maybe you don't. Uh, If you do, then you can say, well, I knew all of that already. That's great. Put it into practice. Theism simply means 
there is a God. In fact, theism says God really exists. We believe there's a God. He is omnipotent and eternal, all-powerful, and He is eternal past, eternal future. He didn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. No one created Him and no one takes Him out. He is God. He is also transcendent and eminent. Now, big words that I barely can pronounce, but transcendent means something that I've said before. He is above and beyond the universe. He is not part of the universe. He is the one that made all the material things of this universe. He's above and beyond. He's above creation. He's, he's just separate from it. He's absolutely holy and separate from creation. But imminent means exactly the opposite. It means he's close. He's intimate. He is involved in the things that happened on this earth. He is beyond the creation. That's transcendent. And he is involved in the affairs of this world. God the Father sent God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come and live among us. I already said that. And then he sent the Holy Spirit to live in us. The God of the Bible is a God who is absolutely bigger than we can even imagine, higher than we can ever imagine, so separated from the, the creation that it's just impossible for our little minds to grasp. And yet I have to tell you that why he would have anything to do with Paul Malfair, and you could put your own name in there, I can't imagine that either. But he's chosen to do that because he truly is is God. That's a biblical concept. Theism. A great God. Didn't I tell you? He's a God. Greater than all the other gods. But there's also monotheism. I don't know if you have to be a great scholar to think this through, but mono is one. So there is only one God. Now, that is partially the way it's seen as biblical. There is only one God. And by the way, that's a mistake. That should be a capital G there. Uh, bad English on my part. Uh, there is only one God, period. The self-existing one, the God of the Bible. But there are others who are monotheists that, is, that are not biblically based because some claim that there's one God who is worshipped at different times and in different religions and by different names, but it's still all the same one God. You've heard the concept. Maybe you've had people tell you this. They'll say, well, that's okay. You give them your testimony of how you've come to trust Christ and you believe that the God of the Bible is true and Christ is true. Well, I am so happy for you. I'm glad for you, and I'm glad you found peace and forgiveness in your life. But you know what? I have a different way. I'm going to God a different way under, with a different God. But we're all worshiping the same God anyway. We're all trusting the same Savior anyway. That's this one. One God, but many different names. Hinduism is like that. Because in Hinduism, they believe that there are reincarnations of God. So they wouldn't have a problem if you worship Jesus. In fact, disease is one of the reincarnations, according to them. But Krishna and Vishnu and Harry will all be a part of that. Just God by a different name. That's also monotheism, but it's unbiblical. The next one, deism. 
You may have heard this word in high school sometime because many of the people that were founders of our country were deists. They absolutely believed in God. They had no problem with most of the Bible. Um, Some of them were true Christians, but some of them were deists. And deism is not a biblical concept. In deism, they do believe that God indeed does exist. But he is wholly transcendent. The best way and a very simplified way of dealing with deism is this. Now, most of us don't do this anymore. We have batteries or a plug on our clocks. Our watches have a little battery in them. But there was a time, some of you that are old as I am, remember when you used to have to wind your watch? (laughs) Well, deism kind of like this. There is a God. He is great God. He made the world like you wind up your alarm clock and then stepped away and doesn't have anything to do with it. And so if anything good is going to happen, we have to do it ourselves. And we are responsible. But God really isn't involved in what's happening in our lives. He is not eminent. He is not close to us. He does not intervene in the world. That obviously cannot be true of the God of the Bible, because in every way he has intervened by sending Christ, by giving us the word of God, by sending us the Holy Spirit, by working in us. And of course, if he doesn't intervene in the world, he doesn't answer prayers and he doesn't cause miracles because guess what? He doesn't hear the first part of this um, chapter. God of the Bible hears and answers. In deism, God doesn't hear and he doesn't answer. He just started and walked away. That is absolutely not biblical. And then there is polytheism. Poly means many. There are many gods. And these many gods can go by all kinds of names. There are thousands and even millions of gods. They believe God exists, but it's always plural. And there are, as I said, many gods... And they may inhabit rocks and trees and the sky and the moon and the stars and the pew and maybe you. They can do that. But there are many, many gods and they inhabit those things. Ben and Nikki Buckner uh, deal with animism where they are in Papua New Guinea. They believe that God may inhabit this rock or this animal or their ancestors and all those types of things polytheism, just one form of it. But obviously, that is not biblical because God says, I'm one. He is the only one. Thou alone art God. There are not many gods. Idols fall into this. As you saw before, they are inhabited by gods with a small g, demons. So, false religion isn't just something to be Oh, you know, it's nothing. No, Satan uses it. It's a totally unbiblical concept. And then there is the pantheism. uh, A pan means all. Not all gods, but here's what it comes down to. That rock is not inhabited by a god. That rock is God. See, God is the universe... And the universe is God. So that pew right there that Mr. Crick is sitting on, that's part of God right there. 
So am I, so are you. Spark of divinity, you ever hear that? The New Age, a lot of Eastern religions, all that way. It's pantheism. Everything is God, and God is everything. Guess what? That is not a biblical concept, because God is greater. He is transcendent. This is totally the opposite of what we looked at before. And then there is religious pluralism. They do believe that God does exist. He is in this world. He, and there are many different versions of it. For example, the first one is, my God is the right God. Notice I put a small g there. Because, yeah, I know there are other gods, but mine's the right one. But on the other hand, most of it goes like this. Others have partial truth. I already mentioned uh, Hinduism before, but it's a lot of them. People do this all the time without putting a tag on it. See, the gods of this world are inferior, less than the God. God either is who he is and who he says he is, or he is not anything. Religious pluralism says... You're okay, I'm okay, we're just different. And then there is supersessionism. I have never used that word until this morning, about two hours ago. By the way, it is a partially biblical concept. Because what happens is, my religion is the fulfillment of a previous religion. Is that that Christian? Nobody will answer now, because they're not sure. It is. Think about it. Judaism pointed to Christ. The New Testament, what Christ has done, has fulfilled all the Old Testament foreshadows and all the prophecies of the Old Testament. So in that way, it's true. But there are also other religions where it's totally unbiblical. For example, and you may never have known about this religion, but the Baha'i religion. They believe that all the religions and all the gods are okay. In fact is, everyone that comes along is just a broadening and an improvement on the last one. And so something that Abraham or or Moses said, that's good. But then along comes Jesus, and he adds to it and makes it better. And then along comes uh, their current... um, Leaders, and they're giving additional revelation, and they're making it better, and they're the final revelation. Think about it this way. Islam claims those same types of things. Oh, they claim Moses, they claim Abraham, they claim Jesus, they claim the Apostle Paul, but oh, that's not the fool. We have Muhammad. He has fulfilled it. He's the final word. That is not biblical at all. And then there's inclusivism. Everyone is equally right. You live your way, I'll live my way. We don't bother each other. Everybody's okay. You're okay, I'm okay. Almost sounds like the 60s, doesn't it? (laughs) Just do your own thing. And then the one that scares the daylights out of me as a pastor. Syncretism. Ben and Nikki Buckner, I'll bring them back up one more time. Before they left, Ben was doing an internship, and him and I would have some long discussions at time. And he said, people in the United States don't understand syncretism. I said, maybe they don't know the word, and maybe they don't understand it, but they practice it. People at Garden Chapel practice it. 
And he's looking at me like I'm crazy. Because syncretism is usually this. In a third world country, people will hear about the Bible, they'll hear about Jesus, but they also have their animistic beliefs. And so they start giving Christian names to pagan ideas. And they mix Christianity and the Bible with their own folklore, with their own gods, with their own way of doing things. And they come up with two things that are put together that are neither one of them in the end. They're both wrong because it's a mixture. I tell you, all of us are vulnerable to syncretism. We hear something. We hear it on TV, we hear it from friends, we heard it in school, you name it, wherever, the news, it doesn't matter. And we go, well, that sounds good. Well, it doesn't quite jive with what I know from the Bible, but you know what? It sounds good. You know what? I'll adapt that. And after a while, I'll tell you what, if you get serious with yourself in your own personal Bible study and devotions, and you allow the Word of God to sift your mind, you dwell on it for a while, you'll go, whoa, where did I get that? Where did that come from? Boy, that sounds Hindu. That sounds New Age. That sounds like, you name it, go right down the line. I challenge you, check your lives over and over again on a regular basis because Satan, the religions of this world, the gods, small g of this world, are always on the prowl to get in and to change us and to mix with the truth. And so it just mixed a couple of things together. And after a while, you have really nothing. It's not pure paganism, and it's, not, it's, it's no longer uh, Christianity. And so we need to make sure that we don't do that. But with a few moments left, and I'm going to do this rather quickly, I'll tell you the end of the story. The end of the story is the psalmist says, God, thank you for being here for me. I've cried, you've answered, you care. I don't have time to go in and go back and read it for yourselves because I'm running out of time. But you say, okay, I know God said he was a jealous God, and you've dealt with a few things here and now. But let's look at the Bible. Because as you read your Bible, you will see terms like Moloch. And he's a God. You say, well, why is God so adamant when the Jewish people adopt the things from Moloch. Why, why does God get so irritated? Why does he judge them? Why does he send prophets to tell them to quit doing it? Why is he so adamant that he will have nothing to do with them? I did a little research just on four gods from the Old Testament that fit this. Our God is the lone God. He is greater than all the other gods. Moloch is that pagan deity that you will find several times in the Old Testament where they offered human sacrifices. In fact, is particularly they uh, sacrificed their children. This is a representation. Nobody knows exactly what he looked like, but it's, they believe he was made out of brass, and he had his hands out like this, and what they would do is build a fire in the bottom of the idol. And then they would offer their children to Moloch. They would take the child, living, breathing child, and place them in the red-hot hands of Moloch. Now, I've got to tell you, the parents are there. Can you imagine that, ladies? How about fathers? Man, you want to you do whatever you can do. 
What the priests did was, according to tradition, the priests beat the drums loud enough that you could not hear the cries. That's the kind of thing that this psalm is talking about. And uh, it is something that God says, I abhor that. It's an abomination. I want you to have nothing to do with it. You say, we don't worship Moloch today. I propose to you that we do. Oh, but it's a woman's right to privacy and to her own body. It's called abortion, just in case anybody wants to know. And then there's Baal, the supreme god of all the Canaanite religions. And you'll find him the whole way through most of the Old Testament. He was a fertility god. Remember, what did they need? They're agrarian society. They wanted to make sure their crops produced, their animals produced, and they had sons and daughters to propagate their family. And so what they would do when they got out of fellowship with God, who is the one who provides everything, who cares for us, answers our prayer, they would start sacrificing to gods like Baal. You know Baal mostly from one particular incident. I'm not going to go into it, but remember Mount Carmel? There's a showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Asheroth. And he is, as you see up here, the god of thunder and fire. Elijah pokes him in the eye. says, okay, you prophets, you call down fire and burn up this sacrifice. Call on Baal. Maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's busy. Call louder. They're Bleeding, not bleeding, they're, they're cutting themselves and bleeding and everything else. Nothing happens. And then Elijah, just like here, the God of the Bible answers. He says, God, send fire. And by the way, remember that time? They had just drenched it, totally wet. And fire comes down, not only burns up the sacrifices, but the rocks and the ground and the water and everything. You see, he's a less than God. God says, I'll have no imposter like this. I'm a jealous God. Oh, that's some uh, pictures of Baal. I forgot to put them up. They found them archaeologically. Uh, it's kind of weird-looking character, but nonetheless. And then there's the Asheroth I already just mentioned. She is the mother goddess of all the others. In fact, is her most famous offspring, according to their uh, tradition, is Baal. She's the, he's the most famous. And she, too, was a fertility goddess. You say, why all this fertility stuff? There's an interesting passage in the book of Exodus. It says you are to bring the choice first fruits of your harvest to the Lord. That's the first and the best act of worship before God. No problem with that. But the second part of the verse is the one that's really confusing. Because it says, thou shalt not boil a kid in his mother's milk. That's a baby goat in goat's milk, the goat of the mother goat. You go, what in the world does that have to do with? That was just part of the pagan sacrifices and the pagan ritual that they went through to these fertility gods. Somewhere along the line, they came up with this idea, if you take a a baby goat and you boil it in his mother's milk, you'll have prosperity, fertility. God says, no, no, no. The way you do it is you put me first. You want prosperity? You want The things of this life, and I'm not talking about rich and good-looking and all that kind of stuff. I'm talking about having God 
and being at peace with God and having what you need and being able to serve him, you put him first. That's what the Bible says. But when God didn't do it the way they wanted, like we do, we go to the ways of the world. We just wouldn't put a small G on those ways. But we'll do things the world's way to get our own way instead of allowing God to do it by talking to him and him blessing and caring for us. And then the last one, Ashtaroth. She's also a Canaanite goddess of uh, love and war, and she's the daughter of Asherah and Baal. And we know her today because she has been passed down the whole way till you get to the Greek and Roman times for Aphrodite and uh, also Venus. We know that God. The point is this. I can't even give you a picture of that one. I looked on the Internet. There was no appropriate picture. There were plenty of pictures on the Internet, but none appropriate enough for me to show this morning because just the way the pictures are. Point is this. There is one God above all the other gods. Anything you do to allow any of those other small g's to get in your life, that's idolatry. The Apostle Paul said, flee it. Don't look back. Don't compromise. Don't argue. Don't, don't uh, you know, have a discussion about it. You just need to get out of there. There's only a few things that God tells us to flee from. That's one of them. Because all of us need to know that somebody hears. Somebody answers. We need to know that there's someone greater than ourselves. See, all the other small g gods are of man's device and imagination. They're no better than we are. But there's only one God. He alone is God. And we also need to know that somebody cares. Those gods don't have ears that work, mouths that speak, hands that help, feet that travel. They don't have that. I challenge you. I beg you. Go back to the Word of God. Take a firm grip on the God who sent Jesus Christ to die for you, to provide for you, the one who hears, the one who cares. Let's all stand together as we come to the end. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're...